Welcome to the latest edition of the Chambridge podcast series. Uh, today we have uh, Dr. Brittany Pfeiffer-Noble, who's an independent researcher from Louvain in Belgium, and uh, Rod Dreher, who's a visiting fellow at the Danube Institute. And we're talking generally about Brittany's work on Russian Orthodox faith and its revival, and the role of Alexander Dugin, the leading uh, or one of the more influential Russian philosophers that has keenly influenced uh, Putin's foreign and domestic policy. So first, Rod, you were going to introduce Brittany and have some questions for her. Certainly. Yeah, Brittany, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. And uh, I'd like to start out by asking you how you got into Slavic studies and particularly your interest in the Russian Orthodox Church. Yes, uh, thanks for having me. Um, I studied Russian uh, language and literature as an undergraduate. Um, I had never been to Russia. I'm not of Russian or Slavic background. I'm, I'm from the Midwest, was raised in a American, uh, white American evangelical family, but um, was just really captivated by Russian literature um, and realized that it was going to take me several years to learn Russian well enough to read any of the Russian literature. Um, and I, after my, uh, my undergraduate studies, I was very interested in orthodoxy, sort of intellectually and as a, as a faith. And I did a, a master's degree in theology in the, in the hopes that I would figure out the, the meaning of life. Um, um, but in lieu of figuring out the meaning of life, I applied to yet another graduate program, <laughs> as so many do. And uh, uh, around the same time that I actually became Orthodox, I also began a PhD uh, in Slavic studies at Columbia University. And there I worked um, a lot on uh, the history of Russian religion from the medieval to the present, but then especially I looked at um, Russian religious thinkers, uh, white emigre, or white Russians and emigres um, who left after the Bolshevik Revolution. Now, when and, you, let me stop you there. Yeah. When you say white Russians, what do you mean? Uh, I mean, I I mean Russians who were opposed to the Bolsheviks, and uh, so th I and I'm using it broadly to mean kind of conservative, sometimes uh, pro-monarchy, elite. Russians who left Russia, not necessarily who actually served in the White Guard. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting that you're a convert to Orthodoxy, as am I. Now, the generation prior to mine and yours was interested in Russia, primarily at least academically, as a, a function of the Cold War, of trying to understand our enemy. But you came of age in uh, Russian studies at a time when there was relative peace between the West and Russia. Did uh, the Cold War have any influence on you and your own interest in this field? I think what, um, so yes, indeed, certainly, I think there was a, uh, as a as a teenager first studying Russian, I think there was a huge appeal to having professors who had done really daring things, who were reading Samistat, this underground literature, who were meeting poets who had escaped, who had stories of Solzhenitsyn. And so I think there was certainly... Uh, while there were, yeah, there was no problem. I studied in Russia abroad several times. There, was, you know, it's it's a visa. It's it's you know, it's nothing like the Cold War. But there was a kind of aura of this the high stakes at which our field had been built that I think really carried on even in the two thousands. Um, and I think also to be honest, in the I was certainly more involved in the in the humanities. But you, uh, I have a liberal arts background, and for both my undergrad and my doctoral work, it was expected that you would also study 
politics and political theory and have an understanding of how the Soviet Union shaped the Russian experience and Russian culture. Now, I bet you never imagined that you would live to see a time when we'd have a return of the Cold War, or, or so it seems now, right? It's, well, I think at the moment it is. I mean, and yes, let's absolutely hope that this is not going to be 70 years long. Um, yeah, no, it's 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 very strange. It's um, as a so especially as an American, I, I live in Belgium, so I would be I'm much closer to Russia. Uh, geographically, it would be a place that you know I could go for a long weekend if if we could go. Um, so it's it's very strange. Um, the stories from Russian, I have a lot of Russian friends. I'm involved with a, the Russian um, community in, in Belgium, which is quite sizable. Um, and yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's very difficult for them as well, being abroad, not being able to go home or, yeah. Now, uh, before we get into talking about the particulars of your work here at the Danube Institute, the lectures you've given, can you share with me generally, what is the most important thing for people in the West, the US and Europe, to understand about Russia today. I'll give an example. I was studied abroad in high school. I did not know a whole lot about politics. I was not a very political teenager. And the war in Iraq had started. And everyone, as soon as they heard I was from America, were accusing me of the Iraq war. And I felt so flabbergasted that somehow I was individually <laughs> responsible for this military event that I wasn't even old enough to vote for, not, of course, that it was up to citizens. So I think there's this um, this sense that Russians are all kind of blindly, and my example is not perfect, right, because I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention to politics, but Russians are very politically engaged. They don't have a great, they have really no opportunity for dissent in Russia right now, but it, it's, a, it's a country of really brilliant, eclectic, wise people who are critical thinkers, and not all of them, of course, but some of them are. And so I think we just have to really remember, um, because of the media censorship, we can't we can't hear what everyone is thinking, but that doesn't mean that they're not thinking. You know, I, I lived in Vienna the summer of 2022, the first summer of the war, and it struck me as almost obscene the anti-Russian attitudes that you saw. I completely understand being opposed to the Russian government's attack on Ukraine. However, there were signs I saw posters saying, don't listen to Dostoevsky, uh, don't read Dostoevsky, don't listen to Tchaikovsky, or you're supporting the war effort. We didn't even see that during the Cold War. I'm old enough to remember the Cold War, and there was a clear understanding in the United States of my youth that Russian culture, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, uh, Gogol, and the others, was something separate from the Bolsheviks. But now, it seems that they're all mashed together. Well, no, so I think that's what's interesting, and that's something that um, I'll be speaking this evening about at uh, at the Danube, is how, because of this huge geopolitical shift, the tables are turned. So reading Dostoevsky was countercultural in the Soviet Union because he was religious and mystic and believed in uh, a sacred humanity, a uh, sacred brotherhood of humanity. Um, and, and so it was, uh, so he was, yeah, he was, and he was actually taken out of some Soviet curriculums. So even though he was a great master, um, people, for instance, uh, someone that you could continue to read would be, say, Chekhov, who is a, a stylistic master, who's cynical, um, and you could still read Chekhov because he's still a stylistic ma master and he's still cynical. But now Dostoevsky's, um, as I'm sure you're aware, in addition to his novels, he kept um, uh, he was a very prolific journalist. We're kind of almost like an op-ed writer. So with his own, and um, 
and he commented on everything from that occurred to him pretty much. And he had very strong feelings about the Russian state and the sacredness of the Russian state. So it, it is easy to see how, um, how he would not be popular right now. Um, and uh, we're also obviously at a cultural moment when uh, we are not separating the art from the artist. Yeah. Now, one of the most uh, amazing things about the fall of communism to me as a religious American, and I'm a convert to orthodoxy as you are, but I was a religious before I found orthodoxy, has been the resurrection of Russian orthodoxy in Russia. The Bolsheviks uh, carried out this extermination campaign against the church, uh, and yet the church somehow survived. Can you give us a little background about what the Soviets did to the Russian Orthodox Church and how it managed to survive? Yeah, so it's a long story, but I'll, I'll, I'll pick a few points. So in the, in the, in the very beginning, so uh, when the Russian Civil War broke out um, and then when the Bolsheviks conclusively took power, then in the early 1920s, they really waged an all-out campaign against the church. Um, estimates are about 100,000 clergymen and monastics were killed. So, I mean, it's just absolutely staggering. Churches were closed. Um, and, and blown up too. And blown place. up. And, and and any churches that, that survived or monasteries that physically survived had now become state property. So they maybe, uh, maybe could be a museum. Um, but uh, so, and obviously all of the church had was, was completely subsumed into the state. What, what uh, it's a, it's a, it, the Russian, all Russian, or excuse me, the Orthodox churches have a, a degree of independence called autocephaly. And normally when they have this high degree of independence, they also have a patriarch. Russia has a very long, complicated history with not always having a patriarch, but it had one right before the Soviets took over. And he was uh, imprisoned and deposed and replaced with a synod, which is basically a council of people who had been handpicked by the Soviets. So really the institutional church became a Soviet puppet. Um, and this changed under Stalin when he realized that he had to raise morale during World War II. And so some churches were open. And what's incredible is to see the numbers of attendance and um, that happened so quickly. There was still really a, a living memory of what it meant to, to, to be in church. It had been just 20 years. Um, but there was further, uh, further oppression of the church than um, under uh, Khrushchev and Brezhnev. And I think that in the West, they're really seen as, as ineffective leaders or, um, as, um, I don't know, um, as maybe slightly more Western, um, slightly less hardline, uh, certainly than Stalin, but their policies against the church were still very strong. Um, so the, it was really, it was really not until the 1980s that you could publicly be Orthodox and that you could, um, and, and when it happened, then it just exploded. You know, one of the things I heard in talking to Russians and people who know about Russian religion is that the Orthodox Church was stuck after the fall of communism with bishops who had been appointed by the Soviets and who in most cases were KGB agents. And this is just a reality that ordinary Russian Orthodox believers had to live with. Um, how should that affect the way we in the West see and understand the Orthodox Church? Oh, that's a difficult question. I mean, I think absolutely there's, I mean, I think that anyone in, well, I'll say within Christianity, that's my field of expertise. I mean, there, you know, there are no perfect leaders. There is no, um, there's, there's going to be some form of corruption, natural or willed, um, everywhere. Um, I, I want to just... I'll play devil's advocate just for a moment 
because the KGB, I think in the American imagination is like a James Bond villain. I, th I, th I think I'm not wrong. I think technically also the people who wrote parking tickets in the Soviet Union were <laughs> employed by the KGB. So it's not, it's not all sinister masterminds, um, but it was an enormous organ, organ of the government. Um, and I think that, yeah, we don't, I mean, I think that there's a lot that we won't know. Were these people genuine Christians keeping their heads down in the KGB? Were they KGB agents looking for a way to climb up? Um, I, I don't know. And I don't think that we can answer that, but I think that it's, um, it's something that certainly, um, a faithful Russian person, um, would have to take on a case by case basis right. in their parish or, yeah. Now, a lot of Christians in America have seen the resurrection of the Russian Orthodox church as a great blessing, but it's not a, it's not a, a pure blessing. It's a mixed blessing, isn't it? Can you talk about the role of the church and state in Russia today, especially under Vladimir Putin? The state and the church are in a state of, or in a, in, in a moment of what we would call symphony or harmony. Um, so absolutely, um, Putin has Putin publicly professes to be orthodox. Now, of course, we're coming from America. We're used to politicians professing something, but he certainly um, part of his persona is that he is a devout orthodox christian and part of his persona is also that he has close ties with the patriarch that is the head of the russian orthodox church patriarch kirill um and the recently uh so patriarch kirill has supported the war he is uh there are um he's pictured with putin several times since the war there is absolutely no doubt that the church is an instrument in the pr campaign to support um the invasion of Ukraine, um, and 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 I would say um, the also recent constitutional amendments, um, Putin has granted that the Orthodox Church also occupies a special place in um, the the history of the Russian state. So it's um, this this symphony of church and state is also being formalized in in legal documents. Now this is something shocking for you and me as Americans, but uh, I think that it's. Uh, something that, that Americans don't understand really, because we, we grew up with the separation of church and state is something very clear. But imagine how difficult it would have been for an ordinary pastor to stand up and oppose American wars. You know, I'm not justifying what the Russians are doing because I'm against the, the invasion. I think it was a, a terrible thing. But um, if I think that if we in the West, Western Europe and the United States, uh, project our own understanding of church-state relations onto Russia, we're going to get a lot wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think also, I mean, there were certainly like, uh, for instance, there were clergy, or not clergy, there were pastors in the United States who spoke out against um, Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, and they, if, you know, if whoever, especially in the very diffuse nature of Protestant churches, it could be that they're just, they're accountable only to their parishioners. I mean, the Russian Orthodox Church is a complex, dare I say, Byzantine system <laughs> um, of, of clergy and hierarchs with a clear top and with a coherent shared message. So this is not, um, even, even if you were to visit, say, a small countryside Orthodox parish, it's part of a, of a, of a super system. And it's not up to this one priest to interpret the liturgy as he likes to interpret um, what the message. So the, the patriarch sends out like a, normally has like sort of messages and epistles to the community. So those aren't things that a pastor could reword to fit their own understanding of current situation. And I also just like to 
underscore that it's it is illegal to speak out against the war. So this is not um, even even if there was pressure from the church in one direction or the other, there there are very real financial, legal imprisonment. Um, retaliation for, for speaking out against the war. Well, final question about the church. Here in Europe, uh, you and I both live here. We go to Orthodox services here. Mm-hmm. I go to the Russian church here in Budapest. Now, I don't speak Russian, so I don't know what's being said there, but it's still the liturgy. I understand, though, that uh, there have been real tensions in the congregation here between Ukrainians living in Budapest and Russians living in Budapest. How has the war affected your own experience of orthodoxy living here in Europe? And what have you seen within your own orthodox community and in orthodox communities elsewhere in Europe because of the war? So I'll I'll be honest, um, I have not seen this, the tensions that you are mentioning. Now, part of it is that I have the advantage of I'm, I'm living in a smaller city and we only have one orthodox church. So I think it would definitely be different if you had competing dioceses. Um, we had a lot of Ukrainians, um, right when the when the war first broke out, um, some of them have since moved on to other other European countries. Um, some of them have stayed, um, and I and we also the the congregation that or the parish that I'm at has a lot of Russians and Belarusians and Moldovans and Ukrainians from before the war, and it um, it hasn't seemed like a problem to be honest. But there's also a lot of of we're a small Paris. There's a lot of ties. There's Ukrainians who are married to Russians. There are, and I think if you if you meet a lot of people from the kind of the Soviet era, these aren't hard lines. People are one fourth Ukrainian, or they have a Moldovan grandmother. So it becomes the the war makes people want to draw a line and say, "You're really a Russian, and I'm really a re- Ukrainian." But the reality is is that there are Ukraine ethnic Ukrainians who've been living in Russia who are married to some to an ethnic Russian who speaks. So, so I mean, so it's really, it's much more complicated. So I, I've, I've seen very good examples, but I know that there are, um, there have been churches that have really, really struggled to reconcile being um, a church community with the political situation. Let's move on to the topic of your second lecture at Danube about Alexander Dugan. Mm-hmm. Now, he's not well known uh, in the West generally, except to scholars Tell us, who is Alexander Dugan? Okay, he's a very um, colorful figure, to say the least. Dugan is a, uh, a philosopher. He's a politician. He's a writer. He's an activist. Um, he's been a mainstay of the ultra-far-right fringe nationalists in Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So he was a, a, a dissident uh, in the 80s, and then in the 90s was part of simultaneously the Moscow underground countercultural art scene and started a, a political party, which was called the National Bolshevik Party. He was a leader of the Bolshevik Party for five years and then split off to create his own Eurasian political party. I thought you said he was on the far right, but he was a National Bolshevik. Yes. What am I, what am I missing yes, here? Yes, good. I'm glad, well, well caught. Well caught. Um, so he teamed up with a, a famous uh, ultra-left nationalist um, named Edward uh, uh, Limonov, uh, Limonov maybe in English, I'm not sure, um, who's known mostly in the West for highly graphic, borderline pornographic, semi-autobiographical novels about his debauched life in France and New York um, when he escaped from the Soviet Union. He came back to Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union and he wanted to have an ultra-left party. Uh, Dugan wanted an ultra-right party and they did it as a sort of experiment because they both really hated Yeltsin and hated the bourgeoisie. 
The project didn't totally work because Dugan left after five years and uh, Lomonov took it even further left. Um, but they both uh, really saw Russia as not having a powerful enough state, not having a violent enough state. Um, they really supported nationalistic uprisings. They um, were also both really linked in with the punk rock scene. So you have the sort of anti-establishment Tarianism, um, <laughs> that, that um, you know, at some point the snake starts to eat its tail and the left and the right meet. And then, and they- and The horseshoe theory. The ho yeah. and, and they they really, and they tried it and they really did it as an official recognized party in Russia. But he is seen now as being probably the, the chief uh, ideologist of Putin's nationalism and uh, the invasion of Ukraine, things like that. Is that fair? Is it fair to call him that, the, the ideological brains behind Russian nationalism? No, I don't think so. I don't think that, I, I think what's happened is that Dugin says, uh, in some ways a little bit like you could say like Donald Trump, some of what he says a lot of people can agree with. And some of what he says is just absolutely crazy. And then you can kind of decide what you want to cherry pick for a soundbite. Do you want the kind of moderate, oh, you know, you know, a moderate statement, or do you want to really focus on the, the out there? Dugan has been calling for an all-out war in Ukraine for 30 years. I don't think that, and, now I'm, and I'm not a political scientist, I don't think that Putin has been sitting on his hands for 30 years waiting to do this. I could be wrong. Um, I think that Dugan, people now, in hindsight, want to say, oh, maybe Dugan's been right about this one thing, but he's been wrong about a lot of things. And Dugan is pretty proud of the fact that this war in Ukraine has started because he's finally being validated. <laughs> well, his daughter was blown up in, a, in a, a terrorist act, correct? Yeah, yeah, in a car bombing in August of last year. Was that meant for him or was it meant for her? I, I think that's above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's a lot of theories that um, they were both at the same event at like an arts festival in a, in a nice Moscow suburb. Um, it's totally conceivable that he was supposed to also be in the car. I wondered um, in terms of Dugin's thinking, you could tell us a little bit about his understanding of the catacomb and how that influences Putin's political thinking as well. I don't think that he necessarily influences Putin. I think that we in the West really want him to influence Putin because the idea of, especially because this war was so shocking and outrageous and surprising, you kind of, you, you want a madman performative ultranationalist who takes pictures holding grenades. You want him to be the guy telling Putin what to do, not a table of cool, calm, Oxford-educated oligarchs. <laughs> but, but what about the catacomb principle? Does that play a role, do you think, in Russian thinking? I, th I think it I think it does in some... Could you tell us a bit about I'm not what, what you mean by it. The cat well, the, it's from, from scripture. It's that's the, right. the, the, the force that restrains total chaos. Yeah. So I don't think, I, I don't, I don't think that the Russian government is, is on this level of seeing it as a, I think that they're, they see think this as, as a moral war, but not as the sort of, not the dynamism of a spiritual not war. Not an apocalyptic. Not an apocalyptic. Yeah. Well, so Dugan is best known for what is called the fourth political theory. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd like you to explain what this is, but uh, before you do, what are the other three? Yes, no, no. Well, the other three you'll be familiar with. So he says, he he looks basically at the 20th century, 19th and 20th century, says we had, we had three political theories. We had liberalism 
And then there's a response to that. I mean, liberalism dates back earlier. Yeah, and classical liberalism. Classical liberalism. Yeah. Liberal democracy. Yeah. And then as a, re as a reaction to that, we have fascism. And then as another reaction to that, we have communism. Well, the Nazis lost, fascism ended. The communists lost, communism ended. And what we were left with was liberalism. And liberalism that then became pretty much in Dugan's idea became non-political because it was ubiquitous and without existing in a sort of dialectic of other political responses. Liberalism is, is or I think he would say has covered the globe or we could say is quickly covering the globe. The end of history. The yes. end, Fukuyama absolutely, said. absolutely. And he, and he mentions Fukuyama. Um, so this fourth political theory is is supposed to be, is it's, it's a sort of a, it's beyond a Hegelian dynamic because it has to completely transcend what liberalism is trying to do. We can't have a new form. He talks a lot about we can't try and just have fascism without the racism to combat liberalism. We can't have communism without the forced equality and be able to beat liberalism. We need something completely new. And it's so new that it isn't even an ism. It's the fourth political theory. Ah, so why, why should we want to defeat liberalism according to Alexander Dugan? How does liberalism harm us? So, um, and in many ways. So he would, in some of his anti-liberal arguments um, are almost sound like they could have come out of, say, like Noam Chomsky or a lot of the, um, or, or, or figures, uh, conservative figures. Um, so on the one hand, he sees, um, and he talks about this in his earlier writings, liberalism as linked to what he often calls Atlanticism, which is the America's and he thinks of Russia as sort of Russia as this land mass versus these the the crossing the Atlantic are these ideas from America, which are, first of all, their ideas of liberalism don't fit the Russian people. They don't fit the Russian society. Um, but also that they have created the individual as a unit of consumption, as the end-all be-all within society. Um, so his hope is that whatever the fourth political theory will look like. It will include a return to religion, and he's a he's quite esoteric. So, it's orthodoxy, but it's also paganism. It's neo paganism. It's things sacred. Um, he's not he's not a hardliner denominationally, um, but it'll also mean a return to uh, agricultural lifestyles, to smaller communities, to people speaking their local languages, um, to people not just consuming um, Western televised liberalism for him. Uh, you're hearing some of this in in the United States today and elsewhere in Western Europe. Patrick Deneen, the American scholar, mm -hmm. had a book oh, yeah. called Why Liberalism Failed. Yes, indeed, yeah. Really interesting book. And his argument in there was liberalism failed because it succeeded in liberating, quote unquote, liberating the individual from all prior constraints. But it turns out you can't have a functioning society that way. But one of the criticisms of Deneen in that book, that made of the book, mm -hmm. is that Deneen didn't have a political theory to supplant liberalism. Is Dugan taking, sounds like he's taking the next step and trying to come up with something to supplant liberalism. No, he absolutely is. Um, I think the problem is, is that the only the only person who can live out the fourth political theory is Dugan himself. <laughs> so he talks uh, a lot about um, first off, he, he talks about this illiberalism as also, or excuse me, about liberalism as, um, as post-modernity in that there's no grand narrative, everything can be deconstructed. Um, but he does the same. He uses a lot of Heidegger and Baudrillard to kind of create this pastiche of what the fourth political theory would look like. And it's about uh, existing in the trueness of your being, 
which is it's hard to implement so on like a national level. Frank. Yeah. Well, it actually sounds like Heidegger. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, it sounds like Heidegger. <laughs> so, I mean, what, is, uh, what does that mean for uh, taxation to build public roads and school curriculum? I don't know. But Dugan himself is channeling, thinks he is channeling the Dasein energy of the philosopher king. Uh, himself, and I suppose his suggestion would be that we follow him. Um, so, so when I read Dugin, it seems that the fourth political theory is really an updated version of fascism in terms of that thinking, which come, and the other influence that's that's pretty strong in Dugin is Carl Schmitt. Absolutely, yes. So, I mean, that idea of the land-based power, mm-hmm. the Blutenboden power, yes. is more authentic than the sea-based maritime powers, mm-hmm. which are first the UK and then the US, which yep. gave us this hideous doctrine of liberalism in the <laughs> first place. And now the world is returning to its land-based essence. And he exactly. makes that big distinction between the Leviathan power, America, the sea-based mm-hmm. power, and the behemoth that's the land-based power. And that we're now seeing this final standoff so Mm -hmm. to come back to the catacomb this is the apocalyptic moment in Dugin's thinking and And he explores that again in the last war of the world continent for him absolutely the catacomb is crucial he's a very apocalyptic thinker and I think he's he's very conscious that he's in a that the Russians have a tradition of apocalyptic thinking that he self-consciously places himself in Um, I think What's interesting is if you read some of what he writes, say, 20, 30 years ago, um, the problem with the West is that it just doesn't belong in Russia, right? And of course, in the early Soviet years, there was everything, you know, McDonald's and Levi's and, you know, hedge funds carving up their (laughs) industries. Um, But there was a sense that there was a sort of, there was something appropriate to the West. It was fine for Germans to be German and French to be French and Americans to be American. And I think now what you see is not only this, this, Atlanticism versus this Eurasianism, um, but also that Atlanticism is fundamentally artificial. So now there's nothing real. It's it's this it's something plastic and false that's trying to. Well, it was always fluid. Yes, it was, it was based flu- on yes, but, but now but now it's completely corrupted um, and still threatening. Um, and so what I've um, so a disclaimer I've, I've relied on other people to 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 look into this for me since I. Um, don't have any uh, Turkic or Semitic languages, but he's um, he is popular, or he is used in grassroots campaigns in uh, in Central Asia, in Turkey. Um, some of what he's saying, his American, his anti-Americanism, sometimes resonates. And at the same time, I think people also, in in that context, worry that he's still always looking out for Russia first. So it's a different kind of complicated. We're running out of time here, but I want to ask you one last question. Uh, It doesn't sound like what Dugan is preaching will find much purchase in the West. Uh, I may be wrong, but it it sounds so radically different from what we have. Is it something we should worry about for Russia and for uh, elsewhere in the world? Because uh, you and I were talking earlier about we're both Americans who live in Europe, and the experience of living in Europe has opened our our eyes mm-hmm. to the cultural hegemony of the United States, and why uh, it can make you sympathetic to people here in Hungary and Belgium, anywhere in the world, who resent it and feel like that they're being steamrollered. 
Does Dugan have anything to say to them? Uh, here's the problem is I think that if there were maybe snippets of Dugan that people could use to help kind of craft their own response to liberalism, um, it's just, it, it requires embracing an incredible level of explicit violence. So I think that he's, um, and, I, and I think he knows that and he wants to be provocative. And I think that's why when we, we talk about him, he's, he is in a tradition of, of Russian nationalist intellectual thought, but he's also in a tradition of punk rock anarchy. <laughs> um, and he um, certainly, like, certainly reading him is interesting, And but I don't think, um, I think his brand of ultranationalism is is always gonna find more resonance, to be honest, in, in corners of the internet than it's going to with Americans trying to understand Russia or Russians trying to make sense of what it means to be Russian in the 21st century. Is it going to survive Putin, Duganism? In in some man, I, I think there's always there's always going to be someone who wants to take things to extremes, and they're going to find a lot of material there. Well, on that note, thank you, Brittany, and thank you, Rod, for that excellent discussion. <laughs>